And I thought it was important to open with something a little light, but also it's quite poignant because the point of that commercial is if you don't understand the language of the person who you're speaking to or interacting with, you're bound to make awkward and possibly tragic mistakes and, and misunderstandings. And so understanding the language is vital. And when you read a passage like I just read to a modern 21st century Canadian audience, it sounds like a foreign language because it comes to us from a guy who lived 2,000 years ago in a very different culture in a very different world. And the wider the gap is between you and the person who you're listening to or reading, the more work needs to be done to try to understand them. And if you don't want to understand them, that's okay. See, as Christians, if you don't understand what the Bible has to say about your marriage, then you're, you're in for an... Uh, not even awkward. It'll be a tragedy. It'll be, it'll be difficult for you. In the world, if you're a skeptic, you have the option. Most, most skeptics, most Canadians will say, you know what, the Bible's is these words about submitting, it's so primitive, it's so patriarchal. Come on, grow up, church. And if that's the way you feel, I understand. However, can I just suggest, and there I even challenge you and say, you've never even tried to understand what it means. You've just viscerally reacted to what you've seen written before you, and I get that. But if you want to actually have a solid and honest foundation from which to poke at Christianity's views about marriage, then may I suggest you actually try to understand it. So for 20 minutes or so, can you suspend your disbelief and try to understand what is the purpose, what is Paul getting at here when he says these things? And listen, we know that this has been misused. Men have misused this passage for 2,000 years, and arguably longer. We know as well, though, this. Whatever Paul is saying in this passage, he cannot be saying that women are inferior or that women should be seen very differently than men. He's not putting up a barrier between men and women. And the reason I know he's definitely not saying that is because if you've read the book, the letter to the Ephesians, you'll know that he spent the first four chapters tearing down walls that divide people. He has gone time and again and said, you know, the gospel breaks down barriers of sex, age, rank, and race. So for him to then all of a sudden say it sets those, it rips down those barriers, but it puts up this one, is... Foolish. He's not doing that. So if, if he thought he was not putting up a barrier, let's see, what did he mean? What was he doing when he said this? And the reason that this is so challenging to our modern culture and so many women, maybe some of the women in the room, and that's, I get it. And the men, even. Men should worry, because when you see what he's saying, it, it doesn't let us off the hook. But it's not because he's demeaning women, but because he is challenging what we call the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age to suggest and use these words isn't that they're offensive, because he's not trying to offend, but because the culture is so riled up against this sort of language, it's triggered. You know, they hear this language, and they, as soon as they hear women submit, that's it, I'm done. Every feminist listing stops. And I understand that, but let's for a minute, let's just try to not confuse thinking and sinking. Let's just try to understand what he is getting at. And when we do that, we're going to see quickly again we learn what marriage is, what marriage asks of us, and what marriage makes us. Okay? And remember, we're going to have a few weeks about marriage, so don't expect to hear everything about marriage out of this one passage, but we're going to see what it does tell us. First thing, what is marriage? It you know, Paul does something here. He references the Old Testament right near the end. You know, he, he quotes Genesis 2.24, that the man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. Why does he anchor that? 
Well, because what he's doing is Paul's saying, I have this blueprint for marriage that I know, that we've, I've been given by God, this blueprint for how marriages should look. And then he says, and I know it's true, the reason you should abide by it, that you should take it seriously, is not because Paul's making it up, but because it comes directly from creation. Meaning, you were invented a certain way. And this is the blueprint that God made for marriage. It's not Paul's opinion. It's not a cultural assumption, which we often want to think. right? We think, it's just an ancient custom. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul doesn't let us off the hook to say, it's just cultural, just cultural. He instead says, no, these words, this blueprint for marriage is rooted in creation, in who you are. So he does that on purpose. And when he does that, he shows us, and again, it's three things, but I'll move quick. First thing he shows us is that it is proprietary, that marriage is proprietary. Let me explain that with a story. When I was a kid, I lived in this, um, I lived in a pizza store. We had no money. We were poor, cockroaches everywhere, but I had two good friends that lived in similar poverty. So we had a great time. The problem was we loved baseball and hockey, and it's difficult to play baseball with three guys, and, and any sport really, um, unless it's solitaire, but then you have too many guys. Uh, <laughs> so, so what we did to play baseball, because we really loved baseball, was we would play occasionally with more kids, but when it was just us most of the time, here's what we do. One guy would be the back catcher, one guy would be the batter, one guy would be the pitcher. When you get the batter out, you rotate. Pit batter goes to pitcher, pitcher goes to back catcher, catcher goes to hitter. And we did that for hours. And then we meet another guy, Jamie, moves in. So he becomes one of the three. He, he's now, we now have four. So what do we do? We need an outfielder. So we add him to the game. Now, I was allowed to add him to the game because I made up the game. But I couldn't go to the Major League Baseball head office and say to them, hey, you're playing it all wrong. Baseball shouldn't have nine guys against nine. It should be just four. You see, I, wouldn't, I have no authority to do that because it's not my game. And when Paul sticks Genesis 24 in, he's saying, do you understand that marriage is not yours to define? You can play and you can do what you want with the culture. With marriage, you can redefine it. You can live any way you'd like. However, just like I could do anything I wanted in that schoolyard. But make no mistake, my playing in the schoolyard did not make a difference to Major League Baseball. Ultimately, if I went and said, they said, why should you play Major League Baseball? I said, well, I'm really good in the schoolyard. They'd say, yeah, we don't recognize the schoolyard. We recognize this. So when Paul comes and he says, this is what, that marriage is rooted in creation. He is making very clear that the culture is wrong when it makes this assumption. And most of it does. Most sociologists who are secular will say marriage is a human-made invention. We created it. And we created it for a number of reasons. There's all sorts. It could be anything from procreation to protection of the family unit. If you're a feminist, you think it was created um, to enslave women legally in marriage. There's all sorts of reasons that we say we made marriage. And if you think you invented marriage to suit a cultural moment, then it's quite logical that when a new cultural moment comes, you think you can redefine it again to meet what happens. And so once upon a time, marriage was understood to be, it was traditionally seen as um, uh, arranged marriages. Marriages were a means of honoring families and making unions and pacts. But eventually, come around the 19th, 20th century, you see that marriage becomes redefined. Marriage then starts to be known as a vehicle for personal fulfillment. It's for me to reach my potential as, as a human being. And this has carried on. And now, because it's a thing we've created, the culture says, 
when we have new developments, new moods in the culture of, it could be anything from birth control, women voting, women having careers, and I'm not knocking these things, but I'm saying this is just the cultural norm, or the rise in the influence of homosexuality. Then we say, understandably as a culture, well, I have to shift and redefine marriage to meet the way the culture is. And when Paul does what Paul's doing here, he does this throughout his letters about a lot of things. When he's talking about something and he throws this creation verse in, he is saying, this is not my mood. This is not ancient Israel's cultural preference. This is the Lord of the universe's preference. And when he does that, he's saying it's proprietary. Marriage was not made by the culture, so the culture has no right to redefine it. Now, it will redefine it, and it's been doing it forever. But just because it redefines it doesn't mean that what they redefine it to is valid before God. And this is why sometimes Christians are called prudes for trying to resist the redefinition of marriage. Listen, we're not prudes. We just think it's God's and not ours to play with. And I understand. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not knocking the I understand the culture. But we ultimately must think it's wrong. Because it's not just marriage it's trying to redefine. Everything. <laughs> we're humans. Everything we'll try to redefine based on our feelings. We, lo- we, think, we believe it's right to tithe. Until you don't have much money, and then you say, well, now it's not. You know, there's gray area about tithing. Or we know homosexuality is condemned in the Bible, but my son, you know, and this. And we start to change our theology to meet our moods. We've been doing that forever. And the job of the church and of the Scripture and Holy Spirit and all of us is to say, we can't do that. <laughs> Let's keep each other strong in the faith as best we can. So it's proprietary. There's much more we could say, but let's move to the next P. Marriage is proprietary, it's God's, but it's also a priority. Okay? Now, when God says in this wonderful passage, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. I don't know if we realize how even in the ancient world, that was a radical statement. Because in the ancient world, it was kind of like, if you've ever watched The Godfather, Never vote against the family, you know? That kind of idea. The family bond was everything. In fact, you still see it today. Have you ever heard the line, blood is thicker than water? Right? The idea is we're a family. And you can marry who you want, but make no mistake, that person is going to be grafted in, and she better fall in line or he better, because this family. Don't contradict the family. And that's pretty common. And it was much more common in the ancient world. Now, when, when the writer of Genesis says, man will leave his father and his mother. He is saying, this unit, this, fa- this marriage that is being forged is now the priority of that couple's life. Father and mother are needed. I'm not saying it's a separation of the church and state here, of parents and, and kids. But parents, you, need, you and I need to know when to butt out. It's not yours. That marriage unit is now the most important priority to that couple because you will die as parents. I will die one day. My children will leave Sarah and I at some point and go and have their own families. And we'll remain close, Lord willing, and everything. But make no mistake, you'll have to get reacquainted with the stranger you're married to after the kids leave the house. That bond is vital. And we know it because in the garden, God didn't place a mom and a kid. He didn't place grandparents or friends or two people of the same gender. He places the primary unit by which he was going to accomplish his plan, couple who are going to procreate, and the only way we still know to fulfill the mandate, to fill all the earth. We don't know of a better way other than a man and a woman yet. Haven't figured that one out. Nor, Lord willing, will we. So, it's a priority. And the last thing that we learn about this, what marriage is, is how powerful it is. 
when it says that the man will hold fast to his wife, and you've heard this if you've been in the church for a while, the word in Hebrew is the word debek, which means, uh, it's used in Isaiah 41 later, to, be, to refer to soldering uh, two metals together. And he says that those metals then become as, as stronger than anything. And the idea is this, that God has made man and woman from one another. Right? We know the story. The Eve is made from Adam. He is, she is made from Adam for Adam. And then the marriage, when the man leaves and marries this woman, what is happening is he is acknowledging on this horizontal plane in the world what God has already done. He's already made them one. And then he binds himself to the woman in a bond that is as strong as if it were natural. Because it is natural. They were literally made for one another. And so that power there is something we have to lean into. We have to see there's a power in this that must be nurtured, and must be carefully, carefully cultivated as well. And so again, I won't say much more there, but I'll say when we resist, we can and should resist the desire of the culture to redefine marriage. But let us not forget this. We have no right to hate people who disagree with us or to not be neighborly to them. We are to love them regardless of the fact that they despise everything we think about something they cherish. And so we have to balance these two. So... If that is what marriage kind of is, then what, is he, what does he ask of us? What does marriage ask of us? And this is, I think, incredible. So Paul in this passage has a blueprint that he runs through. And it's pretty, let's say it's captured in verses 25 to 27. Let me read them again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present, her, sorry, present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So a helpful question to understand what you are being asked for if you're married, as a husband or a wife, is to ask this question. Why did Christ marry you? Because we know that at the end of this passage, it's very clear, the mystery is that it refer, he's referring to the church in Christ. Meaning, your marriages are to be modeled on the marriage that, God, that Jesus has with his church. He is a model. You should model what he is doing with the church with your spouse. So the right answer is, why did God marry you? And listen, we want to say it's because I'm so nice, because I'm so beautiful. But look at what he says in that passage. It's, it's so freeing. He says very simply, he married us because he met a broken person and wanted to heal him. He met a dirty person and wanted to wash them. And he met a crooked person he wanted to straighten so that he could present you as a perfect bride to himself. Okay? So he marries you for your sake. And this is important. Look, and actually, let me go even further. Now, first he says he, wants to, he marries us to make us holy. Sanctify is, the, is a Hebrew or Greek word, hagios, which means holy. He wants to make you holy because you're not holy beforehand. And then it says he wants to present you to himself in splendor. And that's the word edoxon, which comes from doxology, which means glory or radiance. So now think about this. He marries you and I to make us radiant. So when somebody says, why are you married to your spouse? You may not have said this before, but now you should say, I married her because it's God has called me to make her radiant. And vice versa. And this is the goal, the primary goal, of, between that couple anyway, not talking about their ministry outward. We'll have another sermon about that. Because there's a ministry we have as married people to the world and to the church. But to one another... Our job is to say, how do I make her radiant? 
And even if it means laying down myself for it, because that's what Christ did. He lays down himself to make her radiant. And so, this is, so when you're looking for a spouse, if you're not married already, or if you are married, maybe a rehash a bit of the marriage, the questions you should be looking for is this. You want to find somebody and that you think about and that they think about you like this. They say, I love you as you are, but I'm excited about who you're becoming. You want someone who will say, I want to help you become the person that I know God wants you to be. You want somebody who will say, I can't wait to see what God is making you. And then when you eventually see it, you'll see some of it in this life, some of it in the next one. In this life, you'll see it because you marry, as a man, I marry a girl who is single, uh, who is uh, not a mother, all sorts of things. And over time, she becomes a mom. And when she becomes a really good mom, like my wife, I then say, gosh, I always knew you could be that wife. I always knew you could be that mom. And I joy, I rejoice in the fact that she is growing. That doesn't mean I'm perfect. We'll see that next week when I talk about sin. But this is the goal. You want somebody, remember last week I said you're looking for spouses who are Brad Pitt. Well, women are looking for men who are Brad Pitt. Um, that's not the primary target. What you want is somebody who God has knitted you to, who will help you become radiant, and who you could then say, boy, and I want you to help me become radiant. That's what, God, that's what marriage asks of us. Now, what does marriage make of us? So, gender roles. Let's talk about those, because that's the obvious. I don't want to say elephant in the room, because you may have noticed, I don't really feel like it's an elephant. I think it's just so, it's so beautiful and biblical, but that's okay. The Bible is unabashedly saying a few things about gender roles. First, he says there's, they exist, which is very offensive today. The first thing is this about men. Men, like it or not, says the Bible, your role is to be the head of the household in that you are responsible for making everybody radiant. You're the spiritual one who's supposed to make sure that everybody is growing in maturity towards Christ so that you can present as a father your family to Christ in all splendor. I, as a pastor... And the staff here, we know our job is to present all of you radiant to Christ as best we can. So we preach and we, we, we meet and we do everything we can to do that. And that's the, his job. But to do it and foster it, he has the authority to do that, but to do it as Christ through love. The woman, here's the cultural real sna- snafu part, is women are told, and it gets worse. It's even worse than you think. Let me explain. Why, women are told, Submit. And right away, it's like, oh my goodness, submission. That brings up images of slavery and abuse. And rightfully so. Men have been horrible. Horrible. And there's no, let's not sugarcoat it. Men have abused this text. And it gets even worse. In verse 24, I'll explain what I mean by worse. In verse 24, it doesn't tell you just to submit in some things. It says submit in everything. And then the last verse says that a wife should respect her husband. That word for respect is phobos, which means phobia, fear. It means to revere your husband. <laughs> now, that's tough, isn't it? How do you like that? You see why they, they chilled it down to respect. It's, at this moment, if you're thinking, okay, I'm about ready to walk out, don't yet. Because you're going to see what is being said here. It's not nearly as archaic and primitive as you think. So, what is he getting at? What does submission even mean? First, let's move back to Genesis. We have to. When God creates humanity... We all know the story. If you're, even if you're not a Christian, you probably have heard this. He creates the world. He creates humanity, man specifically. And then he looks and he says, this isn't good. He shouldn't be alone. And when he says that, he then decides to make woman a suitable helper. Right? This word is very difficult. 
Let me make a helper for him, a suitable helper. And that word helper is, oh my goodness, slave, servant, right? It conjures that. But when you look at the word helper in Hebrew, it's the word azer, then you begin to see something. It is used a lot in Scripture, all through the Old Testament. And not every time, but the vast majority of times it's referenced, it refers to God being a helper. And in fact, it specifically refers in all those Psalms, Psalm 70, Psalm 121, Psalm 124, Hosea 13, all these places where it's referenced, it says, God is your helper. And it almost always is a military phrase, meaning you're in trouble and you need help, so I am your helper, I am your reinforcement. And when we start to see it in that light, you begin to realize something. When a woman is made to be a helper for a man, please understand it is not because you have less value or dignity, but because the man is incapable of living on his own. And I'm not saying the woman is capable. The woman needs the man the same way. And the man doesn't need a slave. He needs a helper. He needs someone who's actually stronger than him. When I am being rushed away in a, in a river, my azer, my helper, is not a slave. It's the person who has something I don't have, their feet on solid ground to drag me out. And this idea that helper has diminished the role of women is, one, culturally mistaken, but two, also rooted in history of really bad work by us men. So we have to acknowledge that, that this text needs to be really massaged, has to be understood, and then embraced by both men and women. So there's helper, there's this reinforcement. And so if that's the case, if women are a reinforcement in a marriage to the husband, well, what does that even, what does submission mean? Because I'll be frank, most husbands are not worthy of women submitting to them. They make bad decisions, they're lazy, um, and I'm just being frank. They're not committed to raising the family well. They're not trying to make their wives radiant. They're instead worrying about themselves becoming radiant. So I do understand when a woman says, listen, I can't submit to this guy. If I do, we don't a kangaroo farm tomorrow. Right? I can't submit to this man. I understand. <laughs> I do understand. But let's see, what does he mean? What does that word even mean, this submission word? So when he says submit, he's using the word hypotasso in Greek, which is, a mil again, military term. And it means... And every time I say this, I feel like I'm making it sound worse. Um, it means to arrange and align yourself underneath your commander. So if a, if, a, if a military, if a general says, fall in, fall line, and all the soldiers come and they get behind, they fall in a single file line. So it literally means that a woman's job is to align her life with her husband's. Now, you think, oh my goodness, this is terrible. Understand, if the man is actually committed to making the wife radiant, if he is committed to laying down all of his self-interest for her sake, then there's not, it's not difficult to align behind that as a, as a woman. In the same way, it's not difficult for a man to do that. But when a man is not doing that, oh my, that is, then, then you see faith being tested. Why should I do this? But the goal is this. Remember, you're an azer, you're a helper. Meaning, if the man's job is to make the household radiant, and there's a season where this man is losing sight of it. Not a bad man. Like even, there, there are situations, of course, of physical and emotional abuse. But there's also far more situations of the guy just taking his eye off the ball. And for a season or for a moment saying, I'd rather golf than help my kids. I'd rather put that little thing that has to be done around the house aside. Uh, I'd put that aside so I can be with my friends or do this. Or I'd rather work late. Or whatever it is. So when this happens, the helper, the azer, is not a muzzle. She's not told to shush, right? 
The point of the Azer is to use every bit of skill, strength, wisdom, value, love, everything to get the man back online. To say, hey honey, I love that you play, love playing golf. Um, but we haven't done devotions as a family in a long time. So, hey, would you mind doing that? Or, hey, I know you love doing this, um, but really, could you just do this? Because this is where we're, remember we agree, this is where we want to be. And there's a need. The woman is not, in any biblical sense, of doormat. A woman, nobody in a, a relationship, no woman honors her husband and God and herself by allowing him to abuse her. If there's a situation of abuse, the woman loves the husband by, allow, by making him stop. Because allowing him to continue sinning is not good for anybody. The right thing to do if you are in a physically abusive relationship is call the police and bring civil justice to the man. I'm not saying divorce, but I am saying at that moment, we can't allow abuse to occur. That is not biblical. That's not loving and making your wife radiant. And nor is it respecting him. And I know it's much harder for the woman to act out in that. It takes great courage. It takes a church of people around her helping. It's very difficult. So I'm not suggesting it's easy. But this is the role. And when you begin to see marriage in this light, you realize that it is not two sides fighting for control, like a tug of war. It's meant to be both sides doing what Tim Keller calls gospel reenactment. Laying down, what can I do this morning to lay down my self-interest, as Christ did for you, to make her better? And it sound, we all have different dynamics in our marriage. For us, it's sometimes Sarah's at home with the kids all the time. All the time. So sometimes it's as simple as me just saying on a Saturday, just go, go out, go do something. Go, I'll, I got the kids, go. Just go out and do whatever you want. Um, sometimes it means I don't work after hours to write these sermons because my family needs me. And I just have to say, God, if, I'm gonna write, if anything's going to be coherent on a Sunday, it has to be you because I don't know what I'm doing because my family needs me. And so we have to be doing that continually. And now, let me, now we'll close here. W.H. Auden is a poet, was a poet. He said this about marriage. Like everything which is not the involuntary result of fleeting emotion, but the creation of time and will, any marriage, happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate. And Auden is right, because the, the moment marriages stop being about ego, and start being about flourishing between the two, you begin to see the depths of love that flings cannot even get near. Because the point of it, as we've said, I've said more and more, is allows us to see that God is affirming the dignity of both man and woman. Yes, there's different roles. Listen, there's gender roles in the Bible. And people I know want to say there's no such thing, that men and women are exactly the same, only, cult, only our nurturing changes us. But deep down, not deep down, doesn't, you don't have to go very deep down. We all know that's just not true. Watch your children play and you see the difference between boys and girls. Watch men and women at work and you see the difference between men and women. There's a difference. Not better or worse. Difference, compatible. We'll talk about that too. Complementary. They complement one another. And we'll see why that is so difficult to do as well. Now, um, oh, I lost where I was. But that's okay. So, Here's, here's what I want to say as well for women. If Christ can submit to his Father without any loss of dignity, then you can submit to your husband without any loss of dignity. Man, if, God, if Christ has all the authority in the world and he lays it all down for the sake of his bride, you need to grow up and start doing the same. Right? And when we're both working at trying to do that, you don't have an, a, a, an abusive relationship. 
If one side is doing one or the other, if the woman is always submitting and the man is never loving, it becomes abusive. And vice versa. If the man is always loving and the woman is just taking advantage and never submitting, then you have abuse. And then you're asked to remember that just because the fall has impacted the marriage doesn't mean you get to change it and start divorcing because you don't like your husband or wife. The goal is to work through it because as you work through the good and the bad, you become more like Christ. And it's not easy. I'm not suggesting you stay in an abusive relationship. We've talked about this. But I am saying is there's no escape plan. There's very few escape doors for us in a marriage. And it's not because God is a sadist. Because he's making us like him. Now, I keep losing where I am here. All right. When the husband is unwise, the woman's job is to remind him of the gospel and their partnership and their goal. Men, when your wife struggles to submit, love her and show her the gospel. Skeptics. If you're a skeptic, and first I commend you if you manage to sit through this as a skeptic, um, can I just say that the, temp- the temptation of people who are not Christians is to take the teaching of Christ and apply it, but they don't want Christ. Right? I'll take all these good things you're saying, Carl, about marriage and how it should be, sacrifice and so on, but I don't want Christ. Well, if you do that, here's what's going to happen. Your marriage may improve in certain areas, but it's ultimately not going to prove well enough. So eventually you're going to say, you know what? I have sacrificed and sacrificed and sacrificed and she just doesn't get me, so I'm stopping. No more sacrifice. There'll be an end to it. Women, you'll say, I'm going to submit. I see what he's saying. I'm going to submit. But eventually your husband's going to be such a scoundrel that you're going to say, I can't submit to this guy. Can't do it anymore. There'll be a limit to it. Because without Christ and without his spirit in us, aiding us to be these sorts of supernatural people, it'll never work. And so if you want to be a person who says, the teaching of Christ is good, but him himself I'm not interested in. I'm sorry, you're just like the rest of the world. You, you're, just, you're just treating Jesus like another marriage counselor. But he doesn't want to change what you think about marriage, but change how you do marriage. And you can only do that when his spirit is in you. It's the only way. And it's not difficult to submit to Christ. Because when you look and you actually understand that he gave everything up for you, is he's this sort of a husband to you. When you see that, it's like, man, it's so easy to submit. So easy to submit. But there's no other hope for our marriages outside of that. We're going to talk a lot more about marriage in the next few weeks, but I think that's good enough for tonight. So let's, um, let's pray.